Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Well, welcome now to part two of Elder Holland's biography, but I just, I can't get enough of Elder Holland uh, this week, so I want to share a little bit more. Occasionally, there are things that we'll leave out that I'm like, you know, that's a significant experience. Let's share it. And one of them comes from a talk that Elder Holland gave years ago called Come Unto Me. And I'll never forget that talk. It was had such a profound impact. But he talked about the year of 1979. That in 1979, he said, we held our 20-year class reunion for Dixie High School. So obviously, this is a, a group of people who graduated from high school in 1959. We had great high school years filled with state football and basketball championships and a host of other hometown USA memories. My life was straight out of happy days. Now, I'm not sure if the audience who Elder Holland was speaking to understood what happy days was, but those of my generation understood that reference perfectly. I was Richie Cunningham before Ron Howard was Richie Cunningham. We even had our own Fonzie black leather jacket and all. Anyway, an effort was made to find current addresses of the entire class and get everyone to the reunion. But in the midst of all that fun, I remember the terribly painful letter written by one very bright, but in her childhood somewhat overweight and less than popular young woman who wrote something like this. Congratulations to all of us for having survived long enough to have a 20-year class reunion. I hope everyone has a wonderful time, but don't reserve a place for me. I have, in fact, spent most of those 20 years trying to forget the painful moments of our school days together. And now that I'm nearly over those feelings of loneliness and shattered self-esteem, I cannot bring myself to see all the class and run the risk of remembering all that again. Have a good time and forgive me. It's my problem, not yours. And maybe I can return at the 30-year mark, which Elder Holland says I'm happy to report that she did. But then he said this, but she was terribly wrong about one thing. It was our problem and we knew it. He said, I have wept for her, my friend, and other friends like her in our youth, for whom I and a lot of others obviously were not masters of the healer's art. We simply were not the Savior's agents or disciples that he intended a group of young people to be. And I cannot help wonder what I might have done to watch out a little more for the ones not included. To make sure the gesture of a friendly word or a listening ear or a little low-cost casual talk and some shared time might have reached far enough to include those hanging on the outer edge of the social circle and in some cases barely hanging on at all. And the Elder, Elder Holland said this, Jesus said in the culmination of his most remarkable sermon ever, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publican so. It is with some apostolic sorrow that I acknowledge that I have never known what it's like not to have a date when everyone else had one, or to be painfully shy, or to be chosen last for basketball, nor to be truly poor, nor to face the memories and emotions of a broken home, 
nor any one of a hundred other things. I know many in this audience have had to contend with in the past or are contending with right now. But in acknowledging that, I make an appeal for us to reach beyond our own contentment, to move out of our own comfort and companion zone, and to reach those who may not always be easy to reach. If we do less than what distinguishes us from the biblical publican. And then Elder Holland said, I might not have been able to heal all the wounds of those I met in my young adult years, your years, but I can't help think that if I had tried even harder to be more of a healer, more of a helper, and a little less focused on myself, and a little more centered on others, some days in the lives of those God placed in my path would have been much better, he said. Now I want to contrast that story with something a little bit different that happened a few years later. Instead of 1959, now it's in the mid-1960s or late 1960s, and Elder Holland is in Seattle, and he's the institute director there. And I want to read to you what Brent Nash said, who was uh, the stake president there when I was a missionary, but also later the temple president. He said that Elder Holland was instrumental in building that institute at the University of Washington into a major force for good among Latter-day Saint students on the University of Washington campus. President Nash said that Elder Holland reached out to many young members who might otherwise have faded into anonymity on campus. Youth were drawn to him, and if he was able to bring some of those youth back into the institute, the gospel changed them. And now I'm reading from Elder Holland's biography in the Ensign back in 94. It was a time when uninformed comment about the church had generated controversy on campus, but the young institute director's ability to make friends and touch hearts helped erase ill feelings among students and organizations allied with other faiths. Elder Holland became a sought-after speaker for firesides and other church programs, and his wife Patricia frequently spoke among them. Anyway, just to give you an idea of the outreach and the way that Elder Holland was able to go, go after those lost sheep on the University of Washington campus and bring them in shows what a great change in his own life from when he had been a high school student to an institute director and was looking to help bring those people back in. Now, I want to go back to the BYU years just for a minute because I had my own personal experience with some of, some of, of that time period. And one of them was, first of all, just the, the aura, the presence that Elder Holland carried. I remember on several occasions being in different places on the campus, whether it was the barbershop, the Wilkinson Center, uh, the RB. And when Elder Holland walked into a room, you noticeably felt it. I mean, there was just a presence that he carried. That em- There was just a light that emanated from him. And I remember it well. The other thing I remember well was the devotionals that he and Patricia were engaged in. They were often called the Jeff and Pat Show, and they had so much fun. Prior to the Hollands, when the BYU president spoke, it was usually just him. And the wife wasn't really included as much. And Elder Holland decided that, no, I want, I want this to be a thing with us. I want, the, I want my wife to have a, a significant presence on our campus. And I remember many of those devotionals were fun. I mean, they they had their own like game show they created a time or two. The very first devotional I attended as Elder and Sister Holland spoke, each of their children 
came up to them during their talk at the podium. I mean, this was all scripted, but it was funny. And they would whisper in their parents' ears and Elder Holland would pull out a car key or he would pull out some money or something else. And it was just a reminder to all of us that they were parents too at the same time, not just our our leaders. And uh, I was very aware that the Hollands lived in the president's home on campus. I remember quite a few times because I would walk by that home every day on my way home. And I remember sometimes you'd see kids in the backyard jumping on the trampoline and you'd think, you know what, I wonder how weird that would be if I just went back there and jumped on that trampoline myself. Elder Holland said this, from the day that we came here, BYU, we wanted the students to see us together. And that's why we started speaking together at the devotionals. In a time and in a world where there is still a lot of concerns about women and their contributions, I wanted to make it absolutely clear that in this church and at this university, there is a visible and important role for a woman, but one which also fits with her role as wife and mother. Well, it just so happens that during that time that Elder and Sister Holland served as presidents at BYU, that Sister Holland was called into the general young women's presidency of the church. But they tried and managed to keep a private place, a private home, uh, for the family. It was important for Sister Holland, she said, to maintain as normal of a schedule as possible. In fact, she had a rule that she would try to never be away from home two nights in a row, regardless of whatever the university activity, the university activity required her to do. And because her family and their home are such a prime importance, it was an act of faith and sacrifice when she accepted that calling to serve as a counselor in the Young Women's General Presidency, while, and while Elder Holland continued to stay on as president of BYU. Now, I'm going to go back to that experience I shared in our previous episode, where not only did, not only did Elder Holland speak, or President Holland speak, in general conference in the priesthood session, but Matt, his 16-year-old son, spoke in conference with him, if you can imagine that. And here's something that Elder Holland said in that talk. He said, what I cherish in my relationship with Matt is that he is, along with his mother and sister and brother, my closest, dearest friend. I would rather be here at this priesthood meeting tonight with my son than with any other male companion in the world. I love to be with him. He said, we talk a lot. We laugh a lot. We play one-on-one basketball. We play tennis and racquetball, though I refuse to golf with him. That's a private joke. We discuss problems. I'm the president of a small university, and he's the president of a large high school class. We compare notes and offer suggestions and share each other's challenges. I pray for him and have cried with him, and I'm immensely proud of him. We often imagine together what his mission will be like because he knows how much my mission meant to me. And he asked me about temple marriage because he knows I am absolutely crazy about his mother. He wants his future wife to be like her and for them to to have what we have. Oh, I love that about Elder Holland. So once again, that great relationship with his son, Matthew. You can just tell how strong of a relationship this father and his son have. In fact, in his talk, in Matthew's talk, He said this, he said, I recently learned another significant lesson from my father about his love for me. A few weeks ago, the state 3A basketball championship was being played on a Saturday night in Ogden. I was on Provo High School's team, which was to play Mountain View High School for the championship. After the first quarter, the team met for a huddle. And as I got off the nice soft chair I had become accustomed to, my eye caught sight of my mom and dad sitting on the front row. 
This might seem insignificant to you, but I was thrilled because in Provo that same night was one of the most important events of the year. It wasn't my father's inauguration or the annual commencement exercises. It was the BYU-University of Utah basketball game. But Dad left that game, as well as several general authorities and other dignitaries he was hosting, to come to my game. That demonstration of love meant so much to me, not because my game was more important, but because I was more important, and is it any wonder I want to show that love in return? We do have a bond, and it's not just father to son, but it's friend to friend, Matthew said. In that same talk, Matthew said, My dad and I have gone for ice cream after every general priesthood meeting since I became a deacon. We're going again tonight. Now, ice cream isn't absolutely necessary to enjoy priesthood meeting, but it helps. I also remember my father telling me a few weeks before I was ordained a deacon that he hoped whenever I prepared, blessed, or passed the sacrament that I would wear a white shirt and a tie. Now, I'm sure I've heard that same advice from a Sunday school teacher or I'd read it in some manual, but it wasn't until my father said it that I intended to do it. Of this fatherhood that we're talking about, I love that his daughter Mary said this, that he's the type of father who carefully planned daddy-daughter activities that he knew I would enjoy, even though they might not be his preference. You know, I I think of that on a personal level because I have seven daughters and one son. And of those seven daughters, I don't know if I did a great job of saying to them, hey, what do you want to do? And so I have great experiences and memories of my girls and I shooting guns and skiing and playing sports and doing all these things. And I recognize, I think we kind of did what I wanted to do. And now I read Elder Holland and of him saying to his daughter, now, Mary, what do you want to do? And I'm like, oops, I think I kind of blew, blew that one. David recalls his father's willingness to sacrifice for his children. Once when the rest of the family was away, Elder Holland took several days out of his busy BYU schedule for a one-on-one trip to southern Utah with his youngest son, David. Later, when the family prepared to move, after Elder Holland was called as a general authority, we drove an hour or more He drove an hour or more out of his way every day for two months to take David to football practice at their new high school. Now, I don't know the details of that experience, but what I'm visualizing is the Hollands still living in Provo, whether it was in the president's home or somewhere where maybe a home was being built or they had to wait for a home to be ready for them. And so he's driving up to Bountiful a couple of times a day to take David to the school where, where the family is going to eventually live. Matt said that his fondest memories from childhood were at the dinner table, that every night was kind of a family home evening filled with laughter, compliments, encouragement, interesting conversation, testimony, teaching, and expressions of love. And then he said this, you always knew dad was happiest when he was at home with his family. And then Elder Holland said this, that I am first and forever a family man. I look at life through the eyes of my wife and children. Now, because Elder Holland has customarily worked 12 to 15-hour days, I've even heard 18-hour days at times, that some people accuse him of being a workaholic. But he said, no, no, I'm not a workaholic because a workaholic can't quit. I can stop. I just choose not to. Don't you love that? And then he said this, I don't have any hobbies except perhaps reading. By the way, when you're working 18 hours a day, you're not going to have too many hobbies. Then he said this, my recreation, my rejuvenation, my refreshment in life comes from my family. I can come home tired at the end of a long day, and after a few minutes with my family, I'm a new person. 
I'm a family man, born and bred, tried and true. If I have a spare night, a free Saturday afternoon, Pat and I don't go out. We don't socialize. We don't join dinner groups. We spend that time with our children. And if I could get a car full of people for a social experience, I would choose my wife and our three children and no one would care when we got to our destination. All that would matter is that we would be laughing and talking and being together. Oh, I think those are such great comments about Elder Holland as a family man, as a father, as a husband, fully engaged, family meaning more to him than anything else. You know, there's another recommendation I have for everyone, and that's the 2021 Roots Tech Elder and Sister Holland clip that you can find on YouTube. And in the middle of that video, which is about 48 minutes long, there's this great section of Elder and Sister Holland now as uh, in their senior years, uh, sitting with their children, their three uh, you know, married adult children, talking about how Elder and Sister Holland used the scriptures to teach their children. And in these touching, pivotal moments in their lives, when they were sitting in the car or at the edge of their bed with their mom and dad, reading from the scriptures and parents teaching and testifying from those scriptures and having that experience be something that both well both of their sons said that they have remembered their entire life and some of these events were over 50 years ago but the hollands love the gospel and they've taught from the scriptures the gospel has been the center of their home and it's a great model for all of us to follow and using the scriptures to teach from and to testify from and to anchor us all to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I would, I would encourage everyone to watch that Roots Tech um, video. It's incredible and it's just a great history of Elder and Sister Holland and their family. Well, the Hollands have a great experience at BYU. They make their mark there. And then in 1989, Elder Holland is called into the Quorum of the Seventy, and some of us may remember a talk or two that he gave. There was even a stint in there during that time where he was called, where he was serving as a member of the Quorum of the Seventy, where he also simultaneously served in the Young Men's General Presidency. And then it was 1994 when Elder Holland was called to be an apostle. And once again, true to form, as we've kind of developed in this podcast on Elder Holland's life, he is an open book, and I'm not sure if we will get any kind of detail on the calling of an apostle more from anyone else than Elder Holland. I mean, he just lays it out there. He is speaking at BYU to seminary and institute teachers. The talk is called A Standard Unto My People. I would recommend anyone try to Google it and find it. But he shared this, that late on the evening of June the 22nd, 1994, Following our return home in Bountiful from a full day here in Provo at the Mission President Seminar, we, we received a telephone call. It was President Hunter. No, once again, that's President Howard W. Hunter. The time was exactly 9.55 p.m. I will never forget it. Now, you may be a little different than me, but I don't get a lot of personal calls at my home from the president of the church, and certainly not at 10 o'clock at night. There was no secretary, no church operator, nothing but that warm and distinct personal voice of our new prophet on the other end of the line. After some small talk, he said, I have a meeting of the first presidency at 8 o'clock in the morning, but I would like to see you briefly before that if it's convenient for you. 
It won't take too long. Could you drop my, by my office, let's say, at 7.30 a.m., but only if that's convenient for you. And here's Elder Holland. Convenient? How typical. It was 10 o'clock p.m. He was still doing church business, and I knew from experience that he would be at his desk by 6.30 or 7 at the latest the next morning. And he was wondering if, after my beauty sleep, 7.30 a.m. would be convenient. I reassured him that I would be at his office whenever he requested it at any hour. He then went on with some more pleasant small talk and laughter, after which he again confirmed the meeting time and courteously said goodnight. I hung up the telephone really quite calmly. I was, it was not unusual for our senior brethren to request some of the rest of us to pop by their offices before morning meetings began. President Hunter had made it sound so routine and so appropriate. In fact, it was so masterfully done that I almost slept that night. Pat, marvelously church-broken wife that she is, did not ask one single question about why he had called or what he had even said in the conversation. Not a single word did she ask. She, he, she just went to sleep like a baby as if the president of the church called her every night. And then Elder Holland said, and maybe he does. Well, the next morning, President Hunter had in fact been in his office for some time when I arrived at 7.15 a.m. Now remember, let's just stop for a minute. Time out. Let's make, take a lesson here. You may remember that Elder Holland was asked to be at the office at 7.30. He arrives at 7.15. That's typical of our general authorities, and it's a lesson for all of us on reverence and what it means to be punctual. He almost immediately invited me in, chatted with me for a while, and then with great strength and a fixed look that I will never forget in those and in those penetrating blue eyes, he leaned across the desk and issued to me my call. Most of that experience I can't or won't share with you, but it was very powerful and very penetrating and absolutely overwhelming. He was powerful and penetrating and overwhelming. I wept and he wept with me. He let me recover with a silence that is so appropriate at such sacred times. He did not say a word for several minutes. I finally composed myself and gave a response as best I could. He reassured me. We then conversed quietly for a full 30 minutes with President Hunter giving me sweet personal counsel and continued reassurance. I sat weeping, stunned, and listening. As our time together drew to a close, he told me that I was to report to the temple at 9.30 a.m. where he informed me I would that morning be ordained and set apart as an apostle and a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He then left for his regular 8 o'clock a.m. meeting for the, of the First Presidency, and I staggered out of the room. At 9.15 a.m., I was waiting as directed on the fourth floor of the Salt Lake Temple. Soon, President Hunter, President Hinckley, and President Monson came in to begin the joint meeting with the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve. In that setting, President Hunter conducted the opening business, introduced me to the circle, gave me my formal apostolic charge, along with appropriate personal counsel, invited my response, and then acted as voice in ordaining me and setting me apart. Following that emotional and unforgettable sequence lasting nearly one and a half hours, I was then invited to sit in the vacant 12th apostolic chair, and President Hunter proceeded to conduct the business of the remaining two hours or so in that setting. My point is at the end of the day, in which I was absolutely drained and as emotionally and tearfully exhausted as a human being can possibly be, President Hunter was getting stronger by the hour 
and it so has seemed from that day to this. It would not have been uncommon for even a perfectly youthful president of the church to have had others do what he had done that morning for five and a half hours, but he did it all, and he was powerful, and he kept getting stronger. And through all of this, I felt a little like Sidney Rigdon after participating in the receiving of Doctrine and Covenants section 76. You will remember that following that great experience, the prophet Joseph was hale, hearty, invigorated, and waiting for more, while Sidney sat limp and pale, nearly needing to be carried from the room. As Joseph said of Sidney, I imagine President Hunter saying of me, Jeffrey is not as used to this as I am. And then Elder Holland says, Now if you please, that's as far as I would like the comparison with, with Sidney Rigdon to go. And then Elder Holland said this, I feel it is part of my personal ministry to bear witness of the miracle that has happened and is happening in the life of President Howard W. Hunter. I interject here for a minute to let others know who are listening that may not have known that President Hunter had been quite sickly and had not been doing well health-wise when he was called and set apart as the president of the church. And Elder Holland wants to make it clear that he was getting stronger and healthier and more powerful. I bear witness, he said, that he is himself a miracle, evidence of God's hand upon the prophets, whom he calls, restores, and sustains. And I think that's a wonderful, great, powerful message shared with us by President Holland, or Elder Holland, his testimony of a living prophet, but also his, his explanation of what it's like to be called to be an apostle and how that worked for him. Let me close today's short episode with just one last experience that has had a huge impact on me. When my wife Janie and I were students at BYU, we were, lived in a wonderful married couples ward with great, great people. And one of those uh, couples was Matt and Lisa Richardson. Another was Dennis and Nikel Levitt. And we, did a, we spent a lot of time together and had a lot of fun together. And so I became aware of the experience I'm going to share with you of Matt Richardson and Elder Holland. And then, years later, as an institute director in Dallas, I called Matt as I was teaching a class on the Living Prophets and just said, Matt, I'd love to teach that, share that story with my classes, could I? And he said, sure. And I interviewed Matt for about 30 minutes one day and, and wrote this story out. And then, not long ago, uh, it was in 2016, Matt Richardson was asked to speak at BYU in a devotional, Brigham Young University, A Visionary House. And in that uh, talk that Matt gave, and any of you can look it up, it's wonderful, it's, it's incredible. But Matt uh, shared this experience I'm going to share with you now. And, and my purpose in sharing it is I just want all of us to know what, that when it comes to our living apostles, and you'll hear me say this over and over again, but these were wonderful, awesome people long before we as a body of 16 million members of the church even knew who they were. Uh, they were doing great and incredible, wonderful things. And Matt just shares the experience here that it was his senior year, beginning of his senior year, he was quite worried about uh, making the right decision for the future. Here he was about to graduate and still wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do professionally. He was taking entrance, entrance exams for a graduate programs, submitting applications. He was interviewing doctors and lawyers, business businessmen and women, teachers, just everyone trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life once he graduated. And just nothing was 
feeling right and he and his wife Lisa started to pray for direction and nothing really happened and then one day Lisa asked Matt if there was anyone that he could talk to that could give him some help and without a moment's hesitation Matt said yes if I could only talk to the president of BYU Jeffrey R. Hall and that would just clear everything up and then Matt wrote this so Lisa who possesses more passion compassion and faith than Joan of Arc Mother Teresa and Esther of the Old Testament combined said, well, then you should go and talk with him. And then Matt said, are you crazy, I thought? What would, what would I say? Uh, excuse me, President Holland, I'm one of the 30,000 students here at BYU. Would you please tell me what I should do with my life? Anyway, so Matt just talks about muddling through the next seven months or so, trying to figure out what he was to do. Never really landing on anything that felt right. He felt like he was in a fog. He felt like everyone else was receiving revelation. Everyone else was receiving guidance from the Lord, but he just wasn't. And the irony was is that while I knew that God would answer the prayers of any who asked with sincere intent, I still wavered in knowing that he would answer my prayers. And I know a lot of us have felt that way in our lives, that the atonement is real, it's just for everyone else, right? Or, yeah, the Lord will perform a miracle for you, just not for me. And he says, when, I, when it seemed like it mattered the very most, I felt a little alone, abandoned, and even hopeless at times. And I reached a point in which I didn't care so much about what I did for a living as much as I cared about receiving divine direction. And it was clear I wasn't standing up very straight. My hands were hanging down, and my feeble knees needed some strengthening. So just literally several weeks before graduating, Matt tells the story of attending his senior capstone classes in the basement of the Jesse Knight building and as he prepared to leave the building he said I noticed a crowd gathered at the west doors and I worked my way to the front of the doors and discovered the reason why no one was leaving was because it was raining but it was a complete downpour having taught at the MTC earlier that day I was dressed in a suit and I can hear, almost hear myself saying typical typical just typical as I looks outside at the rainstorm and sized up the situation he said, I put a Daily Universe newspaper over my head and started running through the parking lot. The newspaper turned to a pulpy mush, and I was soaked immediately. And so I walked slowly, very slowly. I may as well catch pneumonia and be sent to the hospital, I thought. I was in such a blue mood. And as I walked past the Rimhall building, I heard someone yell out, You need this more than I do. And I looked across the street, and there was President Holland holding up an umbrella. I offered an exchange of my backpack for his umbrella. He responded by opening the rear passenger door of his car and offered me a ride home. I ran across the street, got in, and immediately created a puddle of water in the back seat. Sister Holland, who was already in the car, greeted me as President Holland got into the driver's seat. Where can I take you, President Holland asked as he looked at me through the rearview mirror. Well, Matt says, my wife and I were managing some apartments south of campus, and I hesitated telling him where I lived because I thought he wouldn't be very impressed. Or in other words, I, Matt was a little bit embarrassed. But with the president of the university looking me in the eye through the rearview mirror, I confessed the name of the complex. President Sister Holland chuckled, and President Holland said, Pat and I managed those apartments when we were undergraduates at BYU. I was stunned and speechless. In fact, he said, my tiny little brain could not comprehend that President Jeffrey R. Holland actually lived in the same apartment that I was living in. It was impossible. He said that I had long admired President and Sister Holland and placed them on this incredible pedestal. And I imagined that their life was charmed, that he had been the perfect high school athlete, 
had been the perfect missionary, had the perfect wife, everything was just perfect. And so he couldn't imagine that they had started off their lives in this humble apartment. And by the way, as I remember Matt sharing this story with me, I remember Matt telling me that not only did they live in the same apartment, but they recognized that they lived in the same apartment, you know, literally the same room, you know, the, the same apartment room. And also, they both manage those apartments. Are you married, they asked. Yes. My head was still spinning. Do you have children? Yes, we have a son. Our first son was born while we were in those apartments, they explained. Really? I managed to blurt out. Then Matt said this. We drove south on Campus Drive past the Mazer building. As I sat in the car, I suddenly realized that seven months previous, I had told my wife that if I could only talk with President Holland, then I was confident I would receive helpful direction. I mustered my courage and said, did you ever worry about your future? Oh yes, he replied. I was stunned. All I could say was, really? After all, I thought this was a man who had never had a worry his entire life. I asked several other questions, Matt said, and found my response almost to be really every time. Finally, I asked President Holland, have you ever been so discouraged that you didn't know if things would ever work out? Did you ever worry that you may not make it after all? He looked at me through the rearview mirror and answered once again to my surprise, yes, I did. True to the pattern of our conversation, I managed an incredulous really. And I recall Sister Holland saying, yes, Matt, really. We drove to my complex without me giving any direction and I moved toward the door to get out, but President Holland put the car in park. And he and Sister Holland turned in their seats to face me, and we talked. And by, by the way, in, in the account Matt shared with me, he said Elder and Sister Holland were dressed to the hilt. They were obviously on their way to some significant event. But here they were, giving him a ride, a complete stranger a ride home, and seeming like they had all the time in the world. And then Elder Holland said as they talked, Matt, part of your problem is you don't believe. I admit I felt very bad, a little badly as if my testimony was subpar. But Elder Holland said, I'm not talking about your testimony. You just believe that God will work his mighty miracles for everyone but you. And his assessment was right. He then said with his typical fervor, you got to believe, Matt, you got to believe. He offered me sound counsel and heaps of encouragement. And then I got out of the car and I stood and waved until they were out of sight. Upon entering our apartment, I shared my experience with my wife. We wept together and then wrote the experience down so that we could always remember. And then Matt said that that you got to believe, that became uh, the theme and the mantra of Matt Richardson as he made his way through graduate school and the banner on his computer. Now let me add a couple of things to this story from memory that uh, Matt shared with me. One is that a week later or so, there was a presidential reception for all who were graduating from BYU uh, on the lawn of the president's home, and Matt did not want to go. He had had such an incredible experience with Elder Holland that he could not imagine going to that event and then having Elder and Sister Holland not even recognize him or even know who, uh, who he was. And quoting his wife, Lisa, Lisa said, Matt, be a man. You got this. And so Matt and Lisa did go to that reception. And before they even, you know, reached the point where they were right in front of the Hollands, as soon as Elder Holland saw Matt in that line, he said, Matt, you look so much better dry than you look wet. He called him by name. And then he said, oh, and this must be your wife, Lisa. And wow, there it was again, this wonderful confirmation 
of what a, who a true disciple of Christ really is. Um, on another occasion, Matt shared that uh, a few years later, Matt was called to be the bishop of his of a student ward on campus, as he was uh, working on his dissertation here at BYU, finishing up the last semester of his doctoral degree. And Elder Holland called. It was a rainy day, and Matt answered the phone in his office at BYU. And on the other end of the line, uh, Elder Holland said, Hey, Matt, this is your partner in crime, Jeff Holland. And Elder Holland explained that he had just been looking out the window, and it was pouring down rain, and he thought of a day back in Provo years earlier when that, when that student was walking across the campus, holding a daily universe over his head for an umbrella, and they had that experience together. And then Elder Holland gave Matt some great counsel on balancing his life and with his family, with his role as bishop, and then as a, as a student as well. Great experiences. Now, here's where I come into the story is Matt had graduated and Elder Holland's first book was called For However Long and Hard the Road. And I gave that book to Matt uh, as a graduation present. And then he told me later that, well, actually Elder Holland gave me an autographed copy of, of the book. And I was like, well, give me mine back then. Why, you don't need mine. I'll just, I'll take that one back. I don't, I don't know if I ever got that one back. I'm sure Matt gave it to someone else who probably needed it. But anyway, what a great... What a great experience um, of Matt Richardson and Elder and Sister Holland. But it's just a microcosm of not only what the Hollands do on a regular basis, but what all of our prophets do and apostles. They minister one by one. And that one by one ministry changes everything in our lives. I am so grateful for Elder Holland and for Sister Holland, who just has passed away for their wonderful lives together, for the incredible team that they've been, for the way that they've uh, taught us and modeled parenthood and marriage, but also for their faith, for their positivity and for their hope and for their optimism. I know that I was called to my present calling in our state presidency in the height of 2020, right in the middle of COVID. And so many of Elder Holland's teachings during that time, his conference talks that he was giving, not only <clears throat> inspired me and gave me the hope and the faith and courage I needed in that calling, but allowed me to pass those teachings down and hopefully radiate in some way that same hope, that same faith, and that same optimism to the members of our stake. I am grateful for Jeffrey R. Holland and the impact that he's had on my life 